So this morning we're turning to a part of the Bible which I must admit I haven't turned to that often. The book of Revelation. And in fact in 2020 we're going to spend a little bit of time in this book. Not the whole year and not all in one go. Um, but I do plan to spend some time on it. Over the next few weeks, uh, we'll, I plan for us to reflect on the early chapters with seven letters to seven churches in what was Asia Minor or is now called Turkey. And later in the year, towards the autumn, I plan to turn to the rest of the book. But this morning I thought I'd just begin with a few questions which I'm going to put on the screen and just give you a couple of minutes just to sort of talk about them for a second amongst yourselves and then sort of see what you think. But basically I want to know sort of how much experience do you have of the book of Revelation? And if you have any, how would you describe that experience? And what thoughts come into your mind when you think of the book of Revelation? So just... It may be that you've no experience of it at all. That's fine. But just, but just for a couple of minutes, just sort of have a chat amongst yourselves, and, and uh, I'll come uh, and then I'll ask you what you thought. Did you give to these questions? Weird. Okay. Yep. Okay, well, in my experience, there, there, there are a few parts of the Bible which provoke such extreme reactions, and there are two main reactions to the book of Revelation. There are those who spend too much time on it. Okay? And let's be, I'll be really, really honest with you, quite often the people who spend lots of time on it really should not. Okay, and I grew up. I grew up with a bit of this. There are people. I'm not saying nobody should, but some of the people who do. Uh, there are people who are fascinated with what is called end time stuff. Who try to, and, but they then try to pick out little bits of revelation and try to pin it to particular events, situations, institutions, nations, political leaders that are happening around us at the moment. And often, actually, it reflects more the political climate and the political preferences of those who are doing the interpretation rather than anything to do with John. And at the real extremes, you will even get things like this. Has anyone come across the rupture index? Right, okay. This is a thing that is actually on the internet because everything's on the internet. And it tries to predict how likely Jesus is to return today. And it works a bit like the stock exchange. The higher the index, and you'll not be able to read them, but these are all the sort of things they measure it against. And they're all very American biased, I must admit. The higher the index, the more likely Jesus is to come back today. And that's not the point of Revelation. But then there's almost like the equal and opposite reaction. There's others who just don't touch it. It's all a bit weird. It's like a cross between Lord of the Rings and a really gory horror movie. We don't really want know what to do with it. And we don't want to get caught up in arguments with the other lot either. So we just run away from it altogether. 
And I have to admit, for most of my Christian life, that's kind of where I've been. But over the last few months, I've kind of been challenged to explore it a bit further. And for a start, if, if it's, I thought, if it's mainly explored by a particular fringe of the church, and if I truly believe they are doing it so badly, why should I let them be the only voice talking about it? Might we miss out so much of what it has to say? And so I do, as I started this morning, walk softly as I approach this. I tread carefully. I walk quietly. I'm quite nervous as I approach it. But as we do so, I'm trusting God that the promise contained in the opening verses will be true. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. And that's my prayer as we do this. But this morning there are just a couple of thoughts I want to leave with you as we start our time in the book. One is about what's going on in the book of Revelation as a whole. And the other is just a brief thought about what this passage has to say to the churches in Revelation, to us down into our own age, and to our lives about Jesus. So although to an extent I'm setting up the rest of the series, I do want to actually give you something to take away with you, something helpful at the beginning of the new year. So the book opens with the line, the revelation from Jesus, or better still, the revelation of Jesus. And the word for revelation is this. Apocalypsis. From which we... From which we get what word? Apocalypse. Yes, that's right. Now, what comes into your head when you hear the word apocalypse? Disaster, yeah? End of the world. There's not many positive things, are there? And if you do a Google image search on the word apocalypse, this is the kind of stuff you get. Fire, destruction, devastation. It's invariably bleak. And that's probably the answer you would get if you ask someone with a little bit of knowledge about the Bible what comes to mind when they hear of the the book of Revelation. They'll think it's all about doom, destruction and hellfire. But actually the word apocalypsis means something quite different. And doom and destruction were not John's main intention when he wrote it. Apocalypsis is about uncovering or disclosing, revealing, hence revelation. It's about showing something. And it's about seeing things As they really are. And John's main purpose in writing wasn't to make people frightened or to make them feel weirded out. But to give hope to small, isolated groups of Christians who were trying to work out what it meant to follow Jesus in an environment which was often hostile. 
And he wanted them to find something which would help them keep going. And I guess one way of looking at it is like a tapestry. Now I'm told there are people who are really good at this sort of thing. And they can keep everything really neat on the back as well. But let's assume it's something done by the rest of us. Or at the very worst, by me. And you look at the back of a tapestry. And what do you see? A whole mess of tangled threads. And you might struggle beyond the vaguest outlines to see, what, what is this? There's a fair chance that what you're looking at will appear to make no real sense. But if you turn it around, you get to see the picture. Which isn't, this isn't what was on the other side of that. I don't know what was on the other side of that. But you see, you get to see what's really going on. And that's what's going on in the book of Revelation, believe it or not. John himself is quite an isolated figure. He's on the island of Patmos, which is just towards the bottom left of the screen there, uh, which was a time, which at the time was probably used as a prison island. And he was there to stop him being able to continue to share in the worship and witness of the seven churches marked in red on the screen. And he clearly loved these people and they were desperate to stop, the the authorities were desperate to stop him sharing the story of Jesus. And he was writing to a bunch of people in these places who were finding it really hard to trust Jesus. They lived in areas which were extremely loyal to the Roman Empire, which ruled the world at that time. And one of the main ways in which these places competed was in how loyal they were to Rome. And in fact, they were centers of emperor worship. They worshipped Caesar. And these followers of Jesus faced all sorts of struggles and trials, all because they believed in Jesus. And it didn't seem like there was going to be any end to this. And perhaps they wondered why they bothered. It never seemed to get anywhere. Perhaps they were tempted to give up. It all just seemed like a tangled mess of threads without any real sense of direction or any real meaning. Because that's how life can feel sometimes, can't it? It comes to us as a whole jumble of things thrown at us, like a jumble of tangled threads without any real sense of pattern or meaning. And it's almost like we see the back of the tapestry, but don't realise that's what we're looking at. We think we're looking at the front. And so we just think there's no point to this. This has got no meaning. Apocalypsis or revelation is about catching a glimpse of the other side. John and those who would share his words are living in a world which felt so chaotic and meaningless, full of tangled threads, but his experience is one of realizing that there's more going on than what he can see. And it's like for that brief moment, he is given a glimpse of the front of the tapestry and said, share this with those troubled, struggling churches. And in turn, it's been passed down to us. But I know 
That doesn't make it easy. It can seem very strange and confusing for us. And there are a couple of reasons for that and their length. One is that the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. It was written for us, but not written to us. It is good that the scriptures have been preserved, they've been translated, they've been handed down through generations. And I truly believe that when the words of scripture are read, God brings them to life and that they are useful for teaching and guiding, challenging and correcting us in life. But we also must remember that the writers of the scriptures were not consciously writing down stuff thinking, There's going to be a bunch of people in London reading this in 2,000 years. They were written by a particular person to a particular group of people about particular situations that they were facing at that moment. And that's particularly important when you read something that is crammed full of symbols and images like Revelation. I mean, when I'm back in Belfast and my family are all together... It's brilliant, but they're often having these conversations about people and situations and they have little jokes going on and whatever. And it all makes perfect sense to them. But quite often, I'm sat there thinking, I don't have a clue what they're talking about or who they're talking about. And that's people who are related to me, living at the same time in roughly the same part of the world, speaking the same language. How much more so if stuff is written in another place, another time, originally in another language and culture. And John was writing to small groups of Christians in seven cities in what was called Asia Minor then about situations they faced. And there is stuff in here which would have been fairly obvious to them. But we might have to probe a little bit deeper to understand it. Just as if we got a time capsule and sent it back to them and there were loads of references to EastEnders or something like that in it. There might even be times where we do have to accept, for now at least, that we won't completely understand, but that doesn't mean we don't explore But the other reason, and this is linked to the first one, is that John is a first century Jew writing to communities which are largely made up of first century Jewish Christians and who at least used our Old Testament as their main source of scripture. They knew our Old Testament a lot better than we do. Even those of us who think they know a pretty decent amount about the Bible would probably admit their Old Testament knowledge is a bit, shall we say, touchy. Beyond the sort of Sunday school stories, David and Goliath, Joshua and Jericho and Jonah and all that sort of stuff. There are also some books written after Malachi at the end of our Old Testament and before Matthew at the start of our New Testament. And some Bibles still have them. We just don't tend to use them much in Protestant circles. And they're called the Apocrypha. And Revelation makes lots of use of both the Old Testament and the Apocrypha. There are 404 verses in Revelation. And it's estimated, and it is quite a wide estimation, there are anything between 500 and 800 references to the Old Testament and the Apocrypha in the 404 verses. 
And he also draws images from the Roman world and the culture in which he lived. And we see that in this morning's, in, in this morning's passage where John opens with his visions of Jesus. He says, I turned around to see who was talking to me and I saw seven gold lampstands and among them were what looked like a human being wearing a robe that reached to his feet and a gold band around his chest. His hair was white as wool or as snow and his eyes blazed like fire. His feet shone like brass that had been refined and polished and his voice sounded like a roaring waterfall. He held seven stars in his right hand and a sharp two-edged sword came out of his mouth. I'm not going to go through each bit of that description individually. We'll see shortly. We can probably touch on that in future weeks. But I want to just pick out a couple of aspects to show you what I'm talking about. Those reading and hearing these words were the first, for the first time would have been taken to a number of different parts of the Old Testament. But amongst them would have been this one from Daniel 7, chapter 9, where there was one who was talked as being like a son of man, who looks like a human being, who was given power and authority by God to overcome and rule all of the empires of the world. And amongst the description of him was one whose clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool, his throne was flaming with fire, its wheels were all ablaze. And they, and they would have picked up on some of that. But he also combines Old Testament imagery with imageries that were more contemporary to them. At the time, their known world was ruled by Caesar and probably at this time, depending on when it was written, it was most likely the Emperor Domitian. And he was often portrayed as wearing a sash and a great big robe, carrying a double-edged sword, and above all, they found in this period coins in which Domitian is shown holding seven stars in his hand. And it symbolizes him controlling the world. It's him saying, I'm boss here. I control everything. So right at the start, in a world, in a, in a revelation, in a world full of seemingly chaotic mess of tangled threads, in which those who tried to be true to Jesus faced all sorts of hostility and pressure, who were tempted to compromise with or just give in to Rome, because Rome just ruled everything and dominated everything and it seemed futile to resist. John is writing to them and he suddenly said, I've had a glimpse of the other side of the tapestry. He says, I've seen things as they really are. And the message he wants them to take to the res- to, into the rest of this book is quite a simple one. It's this. Jesus is Lord. Not Caesar. Jesus. Though it might seem like a chaotic mess and one which they're losing, they're only seeing the back of the tapestry. And Jesus is the one creating the picture at the front. And powerful though Caesar might think himself, he's not going to stop God completing the tapestry. So that's Revelation. But there's just one other bit. The bit I want you to remember, even if you forget all the rest of what I've said this morning. John is writing to seven churches. And we'll discover more about them in coming weeks. But they're all different. Each of them had different strengths. Each of them had different weaknesses, different challenges. 
we'll see that they get praised for different things. They're rebuked or corrected on different things. They're encouraged to do different things. But they each had something in common. All of them were trying to work out what it meant to follow Jesus in a world which was often hostile. And they often wondered if it was worth keeping going, if they could keep going, that they were fighting a losing battle, and perhaps they at times felt abandoned and forgotten about. Where was this Jesus that they worshipped? And that's why it's important that a key part of John's vision is of Jesus walking Amongst the lampstands. That Jesus is walking amongst the churches. And amongst the first words that Jesus will say to each of these churches. Is the same two words. I know. I know the situation you're facing. I know where you're doing well. I know where you're struggling. I know. I know. You're not forgotten. You're not abandoned. Jesus knows. And whether the angels of the churches are heavenly or earthly figures, Jesus says, I've got them in my hand. I'm holding this whole thing in my hand. He walks amongst the churches. And although it's hard. And although they struggle. He said. I know what's going on. I haven't abandoned you. I haven't forgotten you. I walk amongst you. And one last thing really. In six of the seven letters that we'll look at over the next few weeks. John will emphasize a different aspect of the vision he has given to John. Jesus has given to John. So to Ephesus, Jesus will be the one who holds the seven stars in his hand and walks amongst the lampstands. To Smyrna, he'll be the first and last who died and came to life. To Pergamum, he'll be the one who has a sharp two-edged sword. To Thyatira, he's the one who has eyes like flames of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. To Sardis, he will be the one who has the seven stars. To Philadelphia, he will be the one in charge of the keys. They're all different. They have different strengths, different weaknesses, different needs. They all need something, Jesus to be something different for each one of them. And John says Jesus is sufficient for all of those things. They might feel on top of the world. They might feel weary and struggle to keep going. But Jesus has not abandoned them and forgotten them. He knows them exactly as they are and is there for each of them. And he is enough. And maybe that's a message we need to hear at the start of a new year. Maybe we need to start out with a new vision of who Jesus is and who Jesus wants to be for us. Maybe we need to hear him say, I know. I know where 2019 was great. I know where you really screwed up 
in 2019. I know the things you were frightened about in 2020. I know the situation. I know. I know. And I'm enough. Because it's not just whole churches who come with their own strengths and weaknesses, challenges, needs. Each of us comes with them. And at times we need Jesus to be different things in different seasons. And even when we've travelled a long way and we've known that God has been there for us at different times in the past and in different circumstances, we can all live with the fear that he's not going to be up to the next thing we face. That he will let us die. And that there will be times when we feel alone and abandoned. Like Jesus has forgotten us. And we need to hear those words. I know. I know. I know. And I am enough. So at the start of this year, as we start our time in this book, may we come to see that we are not forgotten. That we are known and loved exactly as we are. And that we are never alone, forgotten or abandoned. Jesus walks amongst us. And he knows us. And he will be enough for all that we bring to him. Grace and peace to you. Amen.